Welcome to the Candor Communication Podcast, where we discuss interpersonal communication and all the human stuff that gets in the way. Join us as we learn to get our message across with more courage, clarity, and connection. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Divan. There are some conversations that touch your soul. Our episode today is one of those conversations. I was expecting this conversation to be full of wisdom, and was, but I did not expect the way it would resonate with me. Today we talk to Ricardo Gonzalez about cultural mastery. Ricardo is the founder and CEO of Bilingual America, an international cultural communications institute. He is an author, public speaker, and trusted advisor to organizational leaders. He is the author of The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, The Six Stages of Cultural Sales, and The Twelve Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. His next book, scheduled for release in February, is entitled To Belong or Not to Belong? How to Create a Culture Where People Long to Be. We hope you enjoy this insightful and uplifting conversation with Ricardo Gonzalez. Ricardo, hola, bienvenido al podcast. Muchas gracias, Divan. <laughs> Thank you. Hola, como estás? Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Well, thanks. Sorry, so that's depleted all my Spanish. So, <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm really glad to, to have you on. And I'm really interested to talk to you about intercultural communication and cultural mastery, which is what you've been doing for a while yes. now. And this is something that's quite personal for you, having grown up in a bicultural family. Can you tell us a bit about your parents and what was life like for you growing up? Well, life was a living hell, Devon. <laughs> oh, really? How yeah, so? My parents, um, my mother was an orphan from the state of Kentucky in the United States. And my father was one of 27 kids from the mountains of Puerto Rico. Wow. We, we grew up in a great deal of cultural dysfunction. And I think that really motivates me in my work as it relates to cultural transformation and culture itself to really try to help people who are struggling to get it together with people who are different from themselves, right? <laughs> so, mm. but uh, no, we, we, my family had was, was deeply dysfunctional when I was growing up. You know, when you're growing up and you're a kid, you don't you don't see that. It's when you look back, right? And and you kind of realize that, wow, there was a lot of cultural conflict there. Things like, you know, like the Latino culture, for example, especially like the culture my father came out of. It's changing now, but you know, it was very machista. It was very male dominant, right? And so women mm. were expected to be very submissive. And there were many conflicts over this. I can, I can imagine one in 27 children. That's, uh, that's an unheard of figure, in t- certainly in terms of what I'm used to. My children go to school and their class has about 27 children in the total class. But having 27 children is, is amazing. Uh, your home would be nonstop action. Well, that was my father's family. So my dad was one of 27 kids. And then, of course, my mother was an orphan. And I think, too, for me growing up, right, in this bicultural home, typically children who grow up bicultural, truly bicultural. So my, you know, one's the Puerto Rican, which is really what I chose uh, from a standpoint of, let's say, a preferred culture uh, was the Latin culture. Mm. And then my mom's culture, which was kind of deep southern U.S. roots. And people who grow up in bicultural homes typically will struggle with two things, uh, identity, you know, who am I? And Mm. identification, who do other people think I am, right? Mm. And and so those are normal struggles for people who grow up in a bicultural home as it relates to identity and identification. And so, you know, I've I've worked with a lot of people over the years who, you know, have grown up in these bicultural environments. And there are some real interpersonal challenges uh, that, that people go through. And so, you know, I wouldn't lay it all on my parents. I think that there are things that I had to grow up into and, and learn to really work with personally uh, to become the person that I was intended to be. And one of the things that 
I know you talk about in your book was the impact that a book that you've read had on you, the book Inspiration by Dr. Dyer. Yes. Can, can you tell us a bit about why that book had such an Im- impact on you? Well, I think it goes back to the same thing that you know I'm just discussing here, and that is that whole sense of identity and identification. So like in my case, I really rejected the kind of the Southern U.S. culture in my life. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. You know, in the United States, that culture is typically looked at as somewhat backwards. And and so that was a point of rejection for me personally. And so the, the book that I read, Inspiration by Dr. Wayne Dyer, it was kind of an interesting story. I was actually on a flight with my oldest daughter and I was reading this book and I got to a section in the book and I started to cry because it was the first time in my life where I really was able to connect and understand and appreciate and also, I think, accept this bicultural background. And it really started to heal me. And the story went like this. This was a story from Dr. Dyer, who, as, as I understand it, and according to his book, and, and he couched it in these kind of fictitious kind of a conversation with God, right? Mm-hmm. So that before he came to earth, he had this conversation with God and God asked him, you know, what do you want to accomplish on earth? And uh, Dr. Dyer uh, said to God, well, I want to teach people to forgive and I want to teach people to be redemptive, right? Mm-hmm. And God said, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> And he said, yes, I'm absolutely sure. I want to teach people to forgive, and I want to teach people to be redemptive. And God said, okay, so here's what I'm going to do to allow you to fulfill that mission. I'm going to put you in a family where your father is abusive, and he will leave your your mother, and he'll leave your brother and you, and I'll give you a sibling so you can get through this, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, well. And he said, when you learn to forgive your father, then you can teach forgiveness. Wow. And he said, and it's going to be so rough for your mother economically that she's not going to be able to keep you and your brother and raise you. And you're going to grow up in foster homes. And eventually your mom will come back and redeem you and your brother. And when you understand the joy of redemption, you can teach it. Wow. Right? And I'm reading this on the plane, and I'm starting to cry. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, Andrea, she she said to me, she said, well, Daddy, why are you crying? And I said, because it's the first time in my life that I really deeply felt and understood and appreciated that, that God put me into this very dysfunctional family that had all this cultural conflict. So I could teach people who are going through cultural conflict and cultural dysfunction to heal. And so I think that for me, when we're able to see people of different cultures learn to become endeared to one another and learn to truly collaborate together for the common good rather than fighting over their differences, to me, that's very redemptive on a personal level. That is so powerful. That moves me even as well. It is a very, very powerful story and a good way to kind of make sense of, of a lot of the hardships that we that we do experience through life as well. And I can relate to that, I guess, not, not so much the multicultural or bicultural upbringing, but I would imagine people who have moved from one country to another often has that same identity crisis as well. Uh, and speaking from my experience, you know, I've moved from South Africa to Australia when I was 17. Right. And there is a period where you, your identity, you know, it's really hard because you kind of fall between the cracks in, in many ways. Yes. And there are many, in, and I think every culture, every, every, yeah, every culture has something where you might be ashamed of on some level, right? So being a white South African, like there's, you know, a lot of shame regarding apartheid, even that was kind of sure. before my time. But, you know, as a culture, that that's kind of the, 
the heritage that you know I'm from, and, and there's a lot of shame attached to that. And, and that kind of reminds me a bit of, of your story as well, where you kind of felt you wanted to distance yourself from part of your culture. How did you kind of navigate that to come to a place of acceptance and kind of accepting that part of yourself? I think until a person embraces their own culture, they really can't embrace another one. Mm. Can you tell me more on that? Yeah. <laughs> culture is incredibly powerful. It shapes us, right? Mm. And so, for example, if you're born in Syria or Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan, the statistical probability that you are of the Islam religion is over 99%. Mm. And religions are systems of culture. So I, I think what happens is that a lot of people really don't even understand what culture is or how it forms them. And that's that needs to be resolved because until we do that, we really can't totally embrace who we are. And you're right. Every culture has things that one would deem as perhaps positive and others would deem as negative. I always just like to say culture is. It's not moral or immoral. It just is. It, it's mm. the outgrowth of the beliefs and the, the values and the norms and the language and the symbols of those people, right? Mm. And, and so when I learned to, number one, embrace my own culture, which means I'm embracing myself, because if I reject my own culture, I'm rejecting myself. Yeah, wow. It formed me. And once I do that, I start to recognize that there were things in my culture that shaped in me perhaps some things that maybe I don't really want. And there are other things that are shaped in me that I really do want. And we can start to become conscious of some of these things. And I think it's incredibly important. But some people try to make the jump, you know, to, well, I want to be inclusive and I want to be, you know, but... How can you be inclusive of other people if you don't truly accept who you are, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so I think it's incredibly important that people kind of really do some of this work of, okay, what are my beliefs, values, norms, symbols, and language, which are the five components of every culture? And how did they shape me? You know, what created me? Because that's part of us. You know, what I did was I just did a lot of this work. And it freed me then to realize that, you know, no one is trying to be bad, right? Mm, mm. They, they're, everyone's a product of their culture. Here's what I say. Everyone got to exactly where they're at, honestly. They don't know any better. That's what shaped them. What, what I try to do is really help people to kind of dig into this really get to understand themselves and how they became who they are because that's the pathway to being able to embrace truly embrace other people after we embrace ourselves you know you know you talk about interpersonal relationships but the most important interpersonal relationship is the relationship that's going on inside of myself mm. I feel like you're speaking to me when you talk about embracing my culture embracing our culture as a great starting point after this podcast, I'm going to cook an Indian meal. Now, my parents were born in India as Anglo-Indians with a mixture of Portuguese, Irish, Welsh. Uh, I was born in Australia and, you know, went through school in Australia, grew up in Australia. And I remember, you know, being in school and I felt somewhat ashamed of having an Indian background. You'd get, you'd get teased about you get a teased about the food and the smell of the food and you get a teased in in all sorts of ways and you know speaking with I don't have any Indian accent I grew up in Australia and so a lot of people don't necessarily know the background of which I come from by by looking at me you know when I first met my wife she would joke with me and say uh, which country are you from today you know which <laughs> depending on what group of people I was going to talk to but you know <laughs> and as you get older and you know coming back to the food I have loved learning how to cook some of the dishes that my mum cooked for me as a child and now to cook that as an adult. I've really been embracing it, wanting to learn it from first principles. So a lot of what you have to say there about embracing your culture really resonates, I think, with all of us in the room. And I imagine 
more and more people with um, you know the world coming closer together and so many relationships that are, are formed that have you know mixed cultures in them seems to be more the norm these days so i imagine so much of what you have to share applies to so many well it's a fascinating study and because you mentioned food a lot of people ask you know where does food fit within culture and so if you look at the five elements of culture the five primary elements of culture which are beliefs values norms symbols and language food is really a symbol things like dance folkloric dress uh, music uh, food these are all symbols they're extensions they're they're part of the symbolic nature of the of the culture mm. right and we all enjoy those things but it's when we have conflict over beliefs values and norms where we really start to struggle <laughs> right yeah. there are some models out there one's called an iceberg uh, model where you know, kind of, you can put some of these top level things at the top of the iceberg or above the water. And those are all the things we see, but underneath the water line is the real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's where, that's where we sometimes really struggle in our relationship. It can be as simple as, you know, you're from a very ordered culture that's always on time, very low context, very results driven. And now all of a sudden you're working with someone from a culture who you know, time isn't a big deal. Uh, they tend to run late. It's not so much about results. It's about relationships. And now we have these kind of these icebergs that start to collide with one another. That's where we start to get into some some issues. One of the things that I was thinking is with me having moved countries with you growing up in a bicultural home, you get introduced to the idea that there are other cultures out there, but sooner, I guess, than a lot of people who maybe have stayed in the same culture for a long time of their life and might even marry someone from the same culture. And it's like, you, like they say, you know, the painters cannot smell the paint. So your culture is so pervasive that you don't even realize you are part of it or shaped by it. How can you maybe, or what are there ways that you encourage people to be more aware of their culture? Like how, how can people become more aware of how their own culture is shaping them so they can better understand themselves? Well, they can go through cultural mastery. <laughs> I think the first thing, you know, we have assignments for this, but, it, you know, you can draw a, a simple graph and on that graph put beliefs, values, norms, symbols, and language and start mapping out the things that really drive you, the things that you believe and how those beliefs create your values and how those values create your norms or your expectations of behavior of yourself and of other people. It's a really fascinating thing to do. There's a lot of self-discovery with this because we are truly shaped by our cultures more so than any other thing in our lives. You know, we talk about cultural mindset and skill set. So the mindset is how we view one another and that will address things like bias and stereotypes and prejudice and you know those types of things. And skill set is how we treat one another. And that specifically addresses, okay, how do we connect with people who are different from ourselves? Are there strategies for doing so, things that are proven to work? How do we create with people who are different from ourselves? And how do we collaborate with people who are different from ourselves? And so if we don't have a balance between mindset and skill set, you know, if all we have is a mindset, then we just... We have great intentions, but we don't have the talent or the skill to actually execute it. And if we have skill without the heart, we're also in trouble. And so when we work with people, we're consistently saying to them, we have to have a balance between our cultural mindset and our cultural skill set. Uh, we have an assessment for this, and it's incredibly revealing. It's like a window on the soul. Mm. And if you have a 10-point scale, and let's say 10 is, oh, I don't know, Jesus or Gandhi, here's what I can tell you. We've done over 2,000 of these assessments with leaders. And when I say leaders, I mean leaders of large corporations. And what do you think the, on a 10-point scale, and anything five and beneath is non-skilled completely, and five to six is novice, 
six to seven is basic and seven to eight is intermediate and eight to nine is advanced and nine to 10 would be an expert level uh, mindset skill set. What do you think the average mean score is of over 2000 leaders? What between a six and a seven, I'd I'd, I'd guess. Mm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking pretty low. It's five point one one. Really? Yeah. Wow. We are incredibly unskilled as it relates to culture. Wow. And and I can prove that with data. Now that's not an indictment on people. It's just not intuitive. Mm. And the beautiful thing is, is that it's something we can learn. My personal viewpoint is that no one should be in leadership in any type of multicultural world without developing their, their CQ or their cultural quotient. It's as important as their IQ. It's as important as EQ, which is the emotional quotient. I think today's leader must have IQ, EQ, and CQ. And the, the reality is, to this point, that is not the case. Most leaders have not developed their cultural quotient, and they are unprepared to lead people from other cultures properly. And so here's a question for you. If I'm a leader of a group of people, and I am personally culturally unhealthy and unskilled, what kind of environment will I naturally create? Definitely not one where your, your team would thrive and perform at the best. Yeah. So if a, a culturally unhealthy and unskilled person will naturally create a culturally unhealthy and unskilled environment. Mm, yeah. That's just a natural outcome. And so when people talk about things like diversity, inclusion, belonging, and justice, and all of these things, what are they really saying in our corporations? They're saying, we have to have special departments to address this because our leadership hasn't created an environment in which this naturally happens. Wow. And you mentioned one way that people can improve in the skill set, or even the mindset, is through cultural mastery. So your, your book, I guess, would be a, a good introduction to that, the six stages of cultural mastery. Could you maybe explain what are the six stages and what, what is the goal? Where is it moving us towards then? Yeah, so the goal is shifted from what most people have learned, which is cultural tolerance, which I think is an incredibly poor goal. Mm. You know, we don't want to just kind of grit our teeth at each other and get by, right? Yeah. The ultimate goal has to be cultural endearment. We have to learn to love one another. Because only when we truly love one another will we sacrifice for one another, which will, in fact, achieve the common good. Mm. So that would be the goal to answer your question. But the six stages of cultural mastery are the first one is education. And the reality is very few of us really know that much about each other, at least the things we need to know to be able to be culturally relevant and connect culturally. Education. The second one is engagement. And that is how do I properly and meaningfully engage with people who are different from myself. But stage one has to be previous to that, mm. which is education. It's stage two, that's engagement. A lot of people try to engage and they haven't educated themselves properly and they fail in their engagement primarily because they just skipped stage one. Mm. Stage three then, after we have proper education and proper engagement, takes us to stage three, which is empathy. Empathy is not sympathy and it's not compassion. Empathy comes from a Greek term, empathos, which means in passion. True empathy means I'm passionate about other people. Mm. And that only comes when I have properly educated myself and I have meaningfully engaged with other people. And that will then take me naturally to a true passion for those people because I will have had a much deeper relationship to them and I'll be able to see their gifts, talents, abilities. And so I'll become passionate about them, which takes me to stage four, which is excitement. So once I have passion for you, I get excited about the relationship. Well, what happens when I'm excited about the relationship? I want to do something together. You know, let's create a vision together. Let's make something happen together. And so excitement is stage four. And by the way, only leaders who are in stage four are truly inclusive. Because only if I'm excited about the relationship do I want to give you a seat at the table. Hmm. Stage five is empowerment. We create a vision. We're excited about the relationship. Let's make something that Well, let's empower it. And only leaders who are in stage five are just leaders. 
because empowerment requires justice. Mm-hmm. And then stage six is endearment, which is we truly learn to love each other, which means we'll sacrifice together for the common good. And right now there's a lot of emphasis on belonging. Well, when do people feel like they belong, like really belong when they feel loved? Yeah. Yeah. And I I recall being in one of your, uh, it was a seminar you ran in 2017 in Atlanta at LeaderCast. Mm-hmm. And and you took us through these six stages. You got us to pair up with with people and basically coached us through these six stages in, in a fairly quick time. And the kind of conversations and the excitement and you know even to that point of endearment grew so quickly. And I was really surprised. Like you can see the energy of the room change. And it kind of started with people being quite awkward. They didn't know each other, being quite reserved. And by the end of the session, you couldn't get people to keep quiet. So I can see how it works. And in person, you know, it is steps. It builds one on top of the other. And it changes the way you interact with everyone. It changes the energy in the room. And can just imagine teams that really implement this, how that changes the energy within the team. It's phenomenal to watch. What this does is it not only gives a process with which to manage my relationships with other people, It gives me a a way to clearly ask myself, where am I at with that group of people? Or where am I with that person? Or where are we together? Right? Mm. And so people who go through cultural mastery, they learn, are we in stage four or are we in stage one here? Mm, (laughs) You know? And, And it gives a clear hook to the relationship, which I think is is, is very unique. To, and, and if you look at the six stages, uh, Devon, three of them are like proactive things we do, right? Mm. Education, engagement, and empowerment. Those are things we do. Mm. But three of them are actually emotive in nature, okay? So empathy, excitement, endearment, and it's the perfect balance between the hand and the heart. Mm. And great leaders have this balance. And great relationships have this balance. Even if you're talking about a marriage relationship, they have the balance between the things we do for one another and how we feel about each other. I feel both challenged and motivated listening to uh, all of what you've had to say in these six stages. And, and and I immediately think of my marriage and I think of, you know, my wife has a different cultural background to me and some of those cultures coming together, they come in perfect harmony in some cases. And in other cases, there, there are things that can cause tension over do we view disciplining children um, differently? Do exactly. we do we view you know making different types of decisions, and that's the that's the first one that comes to mind. Having young children, like how do you discipline, and all of those cultural intricacies and backgrounds come into play, and that can cause some tension because you know in my culture this is normal, and in a different culture, no, that's not normal. It applies to every single relationship, not just the workplace, but our marriage and our friends and our and everyone we can come into contact with. So it's the first time I've heard of a CQ. And these six stages of cultural mastery, and, I, and it sounds, it makes a lot of sense. And I love the end state to really love one another. How often do people in the workplace genuinely think of, and leaders in particular, how many are selected based on their ability to actually love the other people in the workplace? Well, studies show that we spend more time with our work partners than we do with our life partners. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of a bad thing to go to a loveless environment, right? Yeah. It certainly doesn't make us feel like we belong. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel inclusive. And sometimes I say to people, I say, you know, rather than these things being part of our DNA, we just simply create departments to try to somehow address them. Mm. And But those are all symptoms of a deeper, what I, I think it's a cultural cancer, those are symptoms that should tell us, wow, the fact that we need to have special groups for special groups of people within our company should tell us something. Yeah. This is actually so applicable, not just intercultural, but also just interpersonal, because 
every person is a microculture in, in a sense. Like every family has their own symbols and values, beliefs, norms as well. So I think this is so applicable across the board. And I think the same principles apply even if you are from the same, say, macro culture, that the micro cultures can be very different. And I want to drill down a bit into education for a minute. Sure. Because like you say, that's that's a starting point, right? You can't engage until you you educate it. And you had a very I found a very helpful model in terms of that. So by breaking down that cultural education into different elements. Could you maybe explain to us what are the elements of that education that really help to start the journey of cultural mastery? Yeah, you know, I never, I don't quote myself, but there's a quote in the book that, that says, if you're not curious, you don't care. Yeah. Right. I think it starts there. There, there has to be a curiosity about other people because if that doesn't exist, then frankly, you just don't care. There, there also has to be, I think, some, some humility because there are people who really honestly believe that their culture is the right one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else's is wrong, you know? <laughs> of course, that's not true. And I, I, so I think that you have to kind of have some, you have to have some humility, you have to have some curiosity if you're going, in fact, be able to pull this off, then you have to have some skill. Like what questions and could I ask another person that would actually get this person to open up without feeling threatened? And so we give seven different areas to people. And one of them, by the way, is food. So I'll give you an example. Okay. (laughs) So I'm just talking with somebody and I want to kind of connect with this person you know, I don't ask them where they're from or, and I don't ask them how much money they make or what their title is, right? Because those are all things that, depending on where someone's from, they may feel like you're trying to pigeonhole them into a certain way of being or thinking. Depending on their title, there may be classism there, right? So I don't ask people, where are you from or what do you do? Not if I want to get to know them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not interviewing them for a job. I'm trying to get to know them. <laughs> yeah. So we give these seven areas and one is food. Then we just talk about food. Well, it's not threatening. People like to talk about food. Mark, you already talked about food in this conversation and you're learning to cook <laughs> Indian food, right? Yep. So I could actually take that, go deeper. And I think I could touch your soul by doing so. You already have started <laughs> just, right. by, just by making a small well, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's Cuban and we were doing a conference and this he's, he's a very high level executive at AT&T in the United States. And we were in front of a bunch of people and I asked him, I said, hey, what's your favorite food? And we had never done this live and I did not know his answer, right? Mm. So what's your favorite food? This guy, he was Q, he's Cuban and, and his family escaped from Cuba, uh, from, you know, Castro. And I'm expecting him to say some sort of Cuban food, right? Like ropa mm. vieja, platano maduro, you know, rice and beans, black beans, something, right? Mm. And he says pizza. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the absolute best question to ask someone when they say something, and that is, why? <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I looked at the guy, and I was kind of like confused because he, he surprised me. I said, why? And he says, um, well, when I was living in Cuba, uh, we only had a couple channels, and they were always Fidel Castro. But once in a while, we'd get a signal in from Miami. And one day, I'm watching television with one of these scrambled channels from Miami, and he said, I saw this advertisement for this ooey-gooey cheesy stuff that I had not seen. And he said, on the advertisement, there was a red hat. Of course, he's referring to Pizza Hut, right? Mm. And he said, when we escaped from Cuba... And remember, we're in front of about three, 400 people on stage, right? And I asked him this simple question about food. He said, when we escaped from Cuba, we were, went to Panama. And he said, we're walking down the street in the Ciudad de Panama. And he said, I saw that red hat. And again, referring to Pizza Hut. And he said, my family walked in and we ate pizza. And he starts to cry. And he says to me, like no one else was in the room, he Mm -hmm. says, to me, pizza means freedom. 
Wow. Wow. And sometimes we can touch the soul of another human being through things as simple as food and just getting them to talk about their experience. One of the things that I think hold people back from from really asking those questions, right, is I mean, there's a few things. Some people are just scared to engage in general, but one of the things, especially intercultural, is you are scared sometimes to that you might be offensive or insensitive by the questions you ask. And I think that's one of the quotes that I remember you repeated over and over again, if you're not curious, you don't care. And for me, that was a big mind shift from by not asking the question, you're actually not caring. Yes. But, there, but I'm sure there's still that fear of, I don't want to say the wrong thing or ask the wrong thing that might be interpreted as being insensitive or offensive. How do you help people navigate that challenge? There are three barriers to this, and, and one is fear. It could be a fear of rejection. It can be a fear of even maybe my own beliefs are going to be challenged. Mm. What happens if I start engaging with people and I start educating about people and I start to see that, you know, maybe I've been wrong my whole life about some things, about some assumptions I've made about other people. So it's not just the fear of how they're going to respond or react. It's the fear of how I might respond internally if I find out that, whoa, wait a minute, I'm challenging my own beliefs here. And to some people, that's very scary. Yeah, totally. In, in your book, you mentioned you took a Mexican pool hall PhD. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I grew up, my, my dad's Puerto Rican and my dad did not like Mexicans. You know, some people think, well, they're all Latinos and they all love each other. Well, that's not true. A lot of these countries have been at war together, right? Mm. My dad did not like Mexicans. And so I was just conditioned that way. That, that was the way I was raised. And I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, the predominant Latino population was Mexican. And I'm like, man, I need to, I need to learn this group of people. And not only do I need to learn them, I need to learn to love them. Mm. Well, how am I going to do this? Right. And so I challenged myself and I realized that a lot of the Mexican men enjoy playing pool, you know, uh, billiards. And so I, I literally bought a pool table and put it in my living room. And just practiced so I got good enough where I wouldn't embarrass myself playing pool <laughs> with these guys in these pool halls. And so I, I joke with people. I say, well, that's my PhD in Mexican studies, which is my pool hall degree. Mm. And I can tell you, and I mean this, I could never have learned in a formal classroom what I learned over time playing pool every Friday and Saturday night with people from Mexico. Mm. That's engagement. Now, it's important that we find ways to engage that are, that are safe, that are healthy. You know, I'm not recommending that everybody go out and buy a pool table and, you know, cause maybe they wouldn't be able to pull that off. You know, I already had the language, but I'm relatively tall I'm I'm pretty white. So there's no doubt that when I'd walk in there that initially perhaps some people thought I was from the government, you know, from the <laughs> Homeland Security, you know, and, and I had to overcome some of those barriers, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and the way they might view me and to get to a point where they not only did they accept me, they, I think, began to enjoy my presence as, as I did theirs. Right. And I, I learned to deeply love the Mexican people. But one of the things that I want to say, and I think it really touches on the core of what you both are trying to accomplish here with your podcast. People have this very mistaken idea that we fall in love. And that is not true. We grow into it. Mm. And that's why this process is so powerful. Because it gives us a very specific way to move from, we don't know anything about each other and we don't know each other to actually loving each other. I think this is very amazing. I look at the world and I look at myself at times. We can be very selfish human beings, thinking about ourselves, you know, how fast are we going to run? How healthy are we? How do we look? What are we going to do? What are we going to buy? But how much of our time do we spend thinking about the other people in our lives? And as you say, falling in love with them, whoever they may be. 
is certainly a different way to live life and experience the the true joys of life. So I find that very powerful. I appreciate that, Mark. And I think even beyond that, at least this has been my experience in business. And, and I, this maybe moves into the next book, The Six Stages of Cultural Sales. Mm-hmm. But people in business talk about return on investment. But there's a greater return on relationships than there is even on a normal financial return on investment. It's the relationships that drive business. And the, the healthier our relationships are, you know, people buy from people they like. Imagine what they would do with people they love. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know? And, and so I think the re- we you call it the ROAR, right? The ROR, the return on relationships, is really where we need to be focusing in business and fine-tuning that skill of engagement and connection because that's what really moves business. Yeah, there's there's huge, I think, opportunities and, and rewards personally and, and like you say, in business as well. So if you think of leadership, if you think of sales, team culture, um, personal relationships, there's, there's so much reward for really engaging in, in this and, and really getting to, to understand and then to, to love people. But I think there's also a risk, right? You know, you could be sincere but you know there are risks involved with engaging and coming across as offensive, perhaps. And I think you, you've spoken on your podcast before about call-out culture. Yes. Like, what what are your views on that? Is is call-out culture helpful, hurtful? How you know what's the best way to really respond when someone has offended you or when you've offended someone else because you've been culturally unaware or just insensitive, maybe through implicit bias that you weren't even aware of. Well, I always say I'm here to cuddle you in, not call you out. Mm. I, I think that when people make cultural mistakes, it's an opportunity to help people to grow. I think what we're doing with the call-out culture and the cancel culture is just, it's just incredibly destructive. It just polarizes people. And it has leaders walking on eggshells, not knowing who they can talk with or how. And that's not healthy. In a healthy culture, people are able to speak honestly and openly with love with one another, and they can learn together. When, when we have people who are just like scared to speak, that, that's not a healthy culture. Mm. So I, I want to cuddle people in. I've had people, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I've had people say things to me. I've had experiences in life. You know, I think we need to be much more responsive than reactive. And if you look at it, you just see what's going on in the world. Where has all this taken us? We're more deeply polarized. We're more contemptuous of one another. We certainly trust each other less. People are afraid to speak as who they are. We've defeated honest dialogue. In our companies, we want diversity, but we want diversity of ethnicity and color of skin, but we don't want diversity of thought. (laughs) And I don't think any of those things are healthy. Mm. But that comes back to healthy leadership, culturally healthy and skilled leaders. You know, what's the job of a leader? The job of the leader is to create the culture in which everyone who's there can thrive together. That's Mm. the one core job of every leader is to create the culture in which other people can thrive together. And very few people know how to do that. And thus we have countries that are odds. We have companies that are at odds, departments that are at odds, you know, people that are at odds. But the beautiful thing is that this is a skill set as well that can be learned, that can be taught. And that's what I'm excited about with cultural mastery because we're seeing this with people of all ethnicities and all races who come through this process and they will say over and over, this transformed me. Mm. This made me into a different person. I don't think you can push people into this. I think you can lead people into this. Do any examples come to mind for you where you have, you know, so to say, cuddled someone into it uh, as opposed to call them out? Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, this is a good story. 
There was a gentleman who went to a conference I did in Dallas who was very oppositional, who just really did not want me to even be speaking there. He was just not, he was, as they would say in the United States, a good old Southern boy, you know, and he was very traditional, very conservative, Um, didn't want, you know, or like Latinos being in his area and stuff and all that stuff. And, and he made it known. He was quite vocal. I had three hours with these owners and Afterwards, I engaged the guy and we started to talk. And over time, we became friends. And two years later, I was doing a conference for the same group out in Phoenix, Arizona. And I had no idea this guy was there. And probably 300 people there, business owners. And when I was being introduced, some guy in the audience puts his hand up and actually stands up and speaks and says, before he speaks, I want to say something. I look over and it's this guy. And I thought, ah, oh my God, this guy's coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> guy's probably 63, 65. I swear to God, he stands up and he starts to cry. And he mm-hmm. said, I only came today to ask you to listen to what he's saying because it changed everything about me. Wow. It changed me. It changed my business. Everything changed. Just listen. The guy's crying, man. This is kind of, you know, I couldn't have paid for a better endorsement. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, would, I couldn't have hired Tom Cruise to do a better thing, you know? <laughs> and, wow. and if I had called out those guys, what would have I gained? The pride of I made someone look bad because they committed a mistake that they've been conditioned to make their whole life? And your story is like so powerful. Can I ask, have you always been like that by nature? Or was there a point where you think I changed at a particular age or a particular event? Were you very different when you were younger? First of all, no, I wasn't always like this. I was uh, raised in a home that was quite chaotic. And then when I was in my late teens, I got very involved in a very conservative church group. And to the point, I actually became a minister and became quite conservative and quite judgmental. And then I went through a divorce and I was on the other side of that judgment and Mm -hmm. the incredible harshness of people who preach grace, but don't live it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I lost um, quite a bit in that ordeal and it changed me. It made me realize that we cannot tell people that we love them, we're there for them, and then we're not when they most need us. Hmm. I think the interesting thing for me is that we all can be on a different journey. I think it's interesting that you went through a phase of your life uh, and then you changed. And then we look at all the people around us and, you know, I guess everyone is on a particular stage of their journey, but I guess how important is, is it for us to recognize that we might've matured and maybe we are loving one another better than we used to, yeah. but someone else we may interact with maybe very much beginning and you know, being on the early stages of that journey. Yeah. And I think we can accelerate that journey with a thoughtful process, right? And I think that's what cultural mastery provides people. It provides people an actual path or a roadmap to accomplish this, right? Which is better than just trying to figure it out. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to leave you guys with a thought that I think is really appropriate to this. And that is that as it relates to culture, as it relates to these relationships, our, our pride Our pride will tell us that we're right about things, but our fear will tell us not to entertain the idea that we might not be right. Mm, Yeah. I have a good friend who is very culturally intelligent. And I asked him one day, what's the key for you working with people of other cultures? And he said to me, he gave me a great answer. His name's Adrian Bazemore. He said, the key for me is holding my own culture lightly enough that I can actually be open to another one. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. 
doesn't mean I give mine up. It just means I hold it lightly enough that I can begin to open myself to another one. And I think that really sums up beautifully this conversation. And I would really recommend to to anybody who hasn't read The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, it's definitely worth a read. It's so insightful, so helpful to really give you a framework to to do that work on yourself and in your relationships. And you've also got a new book coming out now as well, which is The Six Stages of Cultural Sales. Is that correct? Yes, it is uh, specifically on how to attract and retain diverse clients, but in a culturally responsible and sustainable way. <laughs> so I love that book. I, I think it's going to be a big help to salespeople around the world on connecting and, and really creating business in, in healthy ways uh, with people of other cultures. Yeah, that's great. And I'll definitely be uh, keen to check that out as well. Ricardo, thank you very much for this conversation. It's definitely, there's been so much here that I'm going to take away from and apply in my life. So thank you for for sharing so openly and and, uh, with such wisdom as well. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Thank you, Devon. Thank you, Mark, for uh, having me. I appreciate it very much. No, thank you so much, Ricardo. I want to go read those books. I haven't read read them yet, but you've certainly tempted me, enticed me to to learn more. So thank you so much. I really appreciated the conversation. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Candle Communication Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can connect with us by visiting our website, candlepodcast.com, where you can find show notes for this episode. Or you can connect through our social media pages on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, please remember to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.